the world works better when you try to understand first and then be understood. What I found throughout this book was that if I reduced it to language and I reduced it to the, the, the thing that exists between us, which is the only thing that I can measure, which is the communication, whether that's verbal, whether it's, you know, facial expressions. I think that the, the empathy component of this was, was very instrumental. And I think if everyone just tried to be someone else and to see them as someone who's having a problem when you have a problem with them, the world would be a much better place. Welcome to the Artist Profile series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dylan Brock, who is an author and musician. And we'll be discussing his second novel titled Roosevelt, Michigan, a musical novel, which will be released on June 18th. His first novel, Dry World, was released in 2016 and is accompanied by a 25 song album. Dylan enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor at age 16. And in 2006, he received a master's of fine arts and fiction writing at Hunter College in New York City. This year, he founded Verissimi Lit, an independent publisher of newsletters and novels that can be found on Substack. Also, I've known Dylan and his family for most of my life, having grown up in the same West Michigan town of Muskegon. Dylan, so good to see you, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks, it's great to be here. So focusing on art, could you begin by discussing how you first got interested in creative writing? Um, I've been interested in writing as long as I can remember existing. Um, the first book I wrote, I was eight. It was a sequel to The Wizard of Oz. Um, there were many sequels, but I felt they weren't good enough, so I decided to write my own. Um, and I never finished it, so it's one of many that ended up in the drawer. But um, from that point on, I just loved creating worlds and fell in love with that process and that act yeah uh, there's also a lot of writers in my family um, so writing was something that was considered to be an occupation uh, in some families it's not in mine it was and who do you think are some of your biggest art artistic influences um i'm gonna go with the writer who i first read extensively and is uh, working now and that would be Salman Rushdie. Um, I was struck uh, reading about his case and the way that developed um, when he was in such a controversial situation decades ago. And um, I decided to see what the fuss was about. And I picked up a copy of Satanic Verses and it just blew my mind. Um, and I had encountered James Joyce before, but to see the interplay of magical realism and um, stream of consciousness and just really strong and vibrant ideas in one place was um, just opened a new world to me. Um, so I proceeded to read four or five, every book he had written up into that point, um, one after another after another. And that's been the case for my writing, 
career is that I, I don't read across the spectrum of writers. I find a writer and I fall in love with them and I just consume them and, and just try to really read everything they've ever written or yeah, that's, that's a sort of goal of mine. Um, I did the same thing with, with Anton Chekhov, who was another big influence later on. Um, but to, to start with, yeah, Rushdie, both his courage from a um, political perspective and the art that supported it was just next level to me. And um, I actually had the chance to meet him in 2004. He spoke at uh, Hunter um, the first semester I was there. And uh, I was 23 years old and I was introduced to my hero and it was a beautiful moment. And um, I don't think I realized how special it was at that time. You never do when you're young. Thanks for sharing that. So turning to your book, Roosevelt, Michigan, um, I read it uh, pretty much in just one period and I got very nostalgic on many different levels, not only because I'm from West Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, but there, there is kind of this, you know, you can never come home type feeling. And there is a, a magical realism that I first encountered in your work in Dry World, but uh, a lot of coincidences and synchronicities and you touch upon love, loss, drugs, rape, mysticism, closeted sexuality, migrant workers, labor, post-industrial society. So just as an intro, I guess, why did you want to write this book? So like a lot of people, I took English in high school, the, the AP English uh, course, and I was introduced to the great Gatsby at that time. Um, and, you know, I had some other friends who were aspiring writers or just, um, aspiring sycophants, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we were discussing Gatsby one day and I said, you know, um, it would be funny if someone wrote something like Clueless uh, did for the Jane Austen novel, Emma, but they did that for Gatsby where they tried to update it. Um, and I always liked that idea. Um, I just felt like it was audacious. Like who, how dare you do that? You know, who are you to try to rewrite The Great Gatsby? Um, but it, in that sense, I felt like no one else would try to do it because it was so um, absurd. Um, and so some time passed and uh, I was reading that the public domain uh, rights for Gatsby ended in January of 2021. And this was um, in early January of 2017. Um, and there was a lot going on at that time with um, sexual politics and the Me Too movement. And I started to think about that old idea I had of Gatsby and how that would work in our contemporary sexual political landscape in the Me Too world. Um, and I started to think about, you know what, if I finish this and I wait until 2021 to put it out, then I can just tell everyone what it really is. And, and that's a reimagining of 
the Great Gatsby turned in on itself and updated to our contemporary political and sexual consciousness. Yeah, so ambitious. And uh, before I got the introduction that you shared, as I was reading it, I was like, this is almost an inverted Great Gatsby shot with a much more connected type story with so many people in the middle class uh, type life to to actually see it and experience where the Gatsby is obviously dealing with, you know, some of the, the wealthiest of the wealthy, but with a timeless story, obviously. So what is the book about? The book is about aggression and passivity. Um, it's about a culture where some people impose their will on others and other people have others will impose on them. A friend of mine once said, there are four kinds of people. There are people who are aggressive and smart, people who are lazy and smart, people who are aggressive and dumb, and people who are lazy and dumb. Uh, it's a little cynical, but um, that sort of set my mind going about this concept of how, uh, well, let's just say rape and um, how, you know, the things that were considered permissible as acts by our president at the time uh, fit into any kind of moral universe that was acceptable. So um, I've always looked at Donald Trump as primarily a misogynist, in addition to being a sociopath and a narcissist, in that his hatred of women and the pervasiveness in that idea, in his ideology, um, imposing his will on them, opposing Hillary, um, looking at all these different issues from top to bottom in his own, you know, cases, umpteen cases of sexual assault against him that'll probably never be resolved. I wanted to take someone like that and talk about it. And you can't talk about Donald Trump because if you talk about Donald Trump, you're talking about Donald Trump and everything goes out the window. So I took um, a little guy and threw together some characteristics and in this case named him Toad and made him sort of a Tom Buchanan proxy in the book, but much more vile and um, a much more uh, sinister concentration of toxic sexual and aggressive um, energy. And uh, so the book was really born of the Me Too time. And, you know, it's ironic because I'm a white Anglo-Saxon male Protestant from the Midwest whose parents aren't poor. And, you know, that creates some tension in any artistic endeavor I, I do. Um, but the place where I felt the closest connection to a group of people outside of, you know, some of the other experiences in my life was just the way that women are treated in our society. Um, it just has always bothered me. And the thing about writing is when something bothers you and it bothers you and it bothers you enough, eventually you start to, to come up with ideas around it. So it was an intensely a political work at the time. Uh, 
directly meant to address those issues in an indirect manner. Um, and uh, I hope it achieved at least some of that while continuing to stay true to some of the thematic stuff of Gatsby and the American dream. I feel like that story has been told, but the story of people just being forced to do what they don't want to do in any number of contexts isn't something that's quite as uh, explored already. So one of the characters, Bob, is one of the narrators. And I'm going to kind of just read some passages and um, see if you want to make any thoughts or remarks. But that had some impressions on me as I was reading them. And I just want to read them again <clears throat> out loud. So. If New York City is an incomprehensibly rapid sequence of discrete, important events arising and passing away, a becoming that never stops coming, then perhaps the realization that a city never persists might have let me rest despite my masochistic wanderlust. Instead, I kept getting drunk and calling it rest. But I believe places are intoxicants that can be distilled into language, and I needed the Roosevelt flavor to cleanse my palate of bitter Gotham. And so it's kind of the reasoning of leaving New York City to, to try to return home. And I know you lived in New York City. And um, I, 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 do you have any, could, could you just say anything about maybe where that comes from, uh, that, that passage with, within your own subconscious or intentionally? Um, well, it goes back to and refers indirectly to some Buddhist concepts in there of um, arising and passing away and the concept of non-self that nothing really exists for long enough to exist. And um, a city is very much like that in that as soon as you've captured it in language, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, whereas I felt like there was something slower about where I'm from uh, in every way and it was the arising and the passing away of, of that particular place was slow enough that I would be able to capture its, its essence more effectively uh, than to just say, well, it's always changing, which you can say about New York, but until you've experienced it, it, it just sounds like a cliche. So the pace of the way things develop in a smaller city that still has a lot of complexities from a political standpoint, from a, a socioeconomic standpoint. Um, there's a lot of lessons there um, and they happen slow enough for you to see them. So um, as much as I love New York and in ways love uh, some of the places that the novel is based on um, in Michigan, um, I've always felt like the best experiments are performed in a Petri dish. And so it was easier for me to, to create this little world and play with it. Um, and again, it goes back to my initial love of writing and just creating worlds. So, yeah. And you mentioned socioeconomic and I, I just love these little kind of side passages that, that got me thinking. The hobo rose to approach them, being an aggressive panhandler, and I sighed and thought of the factory job that would have waited for him in Roosevelt had he fought in an earlier war. 
it's, it's just, it's, it's so true and uh, so real about where we once were as a country and where we are today. Um, and then one of the, the central locations in the, the novel is this place called Stone Manor. And if I could read another passage, Lily was disgusted by Stone Manor, she told me later, not because of its guests, the rubes and racists who could never feel the true art around them, but because of what drew them. They collected around a source of something needed, like moths to lamps, like roaches to refuse, like flies to shit. Without Buddy around, seeing only his people, she had witnessed the naked egotism and the self-indulgence that was Stone Manor. And it made Buddy's gift for being worshiped as a star, whatever the cost, over and over, kind of curse she wanted to break forever. So not to reveal anything um, in the novel uh, as, as it climaxes, but um, it, it, it really does capture the kind of that, that scene with the artists and the hanger-ons. And uh, could you talk a little bit about maybe what originated some of these experiences and, and uh, the, these thoughts that, that you were able to capture? Sure. So I was a professional hanger-on for about 10 years, um, sort of around artists who were making important things, making things in, you know, in the, in the periphery of a few different scenes um, in Ann Arbor, in New York City. Um, I was never... Um, you know, really in the middle of, of what was happening, but I was always close enough to see, you know, what some of the people I worked with were doing that were producing beautiful, beautiful stuff. And um, I, I sort of felt like an outsider um, most of my life. And that, that has allowed me to observe people as if they're another species almost. Um, and so what I like to do with these artistic scenes was just sort of fade into the background and try to be a fly on the wall sometimes. Sometimes I would participate, sometimes I'd be part of it, but just try to think of it from like, this is a wonderful expression of cultural anthropology in unfolding right in front of my eyes, any one of these um, gatherings. And you know the gatherings that really refers to are house shows, or concerts um, that happen with acoustic musicians in houses all across this country. Um, and they are a very interesting phenomenon too, because they give everybody this intimate access to artists who might otherwise be sanctioned from them and held in this revered stage light they they become you know intermingled and there's something very powerful about that you know i can think of some really prominent people who i've also seen play in little rooms and you know i think of that person as a friend um now instead of you know this icon right i'm not going to name any names but um i think that capturing that melange in um, words of music and, you know, sycophants and like the guy who nobody knows who he is and how he got there and what he's doing there 
and he just won't shut up. Just getting that whole scene compressed into one house made it easier to, to sort of look at it for everything that it was from top to bottom. And a couple other uh, passages that I, I do want to read uh, out is this one about Midwest. Um, there must have been in him, as there was in me, that fatalistic side of Midwestern male politeness that believes that the only decent thing to do in an unpleasant situation is to endure as if enduring is a job that must be finished. It's, it's just so uh, <laughs> insightful, accurate. I love it. And then another one on growing old and remembering the past. But he lived, or but he lived and she lived the only way one can. Slowed every day by the friction of age and entropy, the end for everything and everyone. So, I mean, these are just small little sentences that are throughout your novel that are just beautifully crafted and um, resonated a lot with me. And, uh, and I do want to read this, this final passage. Um, it is the, the kind of the last, um, last paragraph. It doesn't reveal anything in the story, but it, it sums so many things up. Um, Buddy had faith in the power of live music. That ecstatic expression now muffled beyond the mass of frightened maturity. It inspired us once in crowded parties when sweat still felt safe yesterday, when we were all closer, touched each other incidentally without morbid reflection, and kissed each other thoughtlessly at the end of the night. Still we dance, mortal and lonely now, listening for the next happy accident in recordings that have none. Just so powerful, man. I'm, I'm like getting goosebumps just reading it off. So, uh, yeah, I mean, please, if you have any, any uh, reflections on that. So I'm going to reveal a little bit of craft here um, and stay with me because this is going to sort of give away some of the tricks. But um, if anyone is interested in where some of the prosody here, some of the lyricism comes from. When you're reading this book, I would recommend doing this after you read it, um, but open up a copy of The Great Gatsby and put it side by side with this book and look at the sentence structure and look at the, you know, the way that one just is mimetic of the other, right? Um, I took on an exercise when I was in graduate school, um, started rewriting like Lolita um, as if it were an appropriate love story with appropriate partners. And in so doing, I began to kind of really just zero in on grammatical structure and, and how Nabokov constructed his sentences like I was diagramming them like I was back in eighth grade and um you know I managed I think to to feel some of how he made things by reducing it to a very simple and black and white system and so when I wrote uh Roosevelt Michigan I did the same thing um fastidiously for hundreds of pages um, breaking down the sentences Fitzgerald made and, and sort of trying to construct sentences that were harmonious with them. 
and the effect uh, I really liked um, because it has the same role in the lyricism you sometimes hear in his work. Um, so I guess for anyone who reads this book, this is definitely like a stand on the shoulders of giants work. Um, I, this couldn't exist without um, Gatsby, but at the same time, you forget, right? You forget real quick. Um, and, and then at various points it comes back, but it's so different in thematics, it's so different in politics, it's so different in setting that the verisimilitude, the spell, the fictive dream takes over pretty quickly and you lose that quality, but you don't lose um, the spirit, right? You don't lose the way that the sentences flow together. Um, so again, it was just really, um, that quality I've had of just being obsessive of existing writers and just taking them apart up, down and sideways rather than trying to read every new book that came out. Um, and it's just how I enjoy writing and how I enjoy reading. Um, and it, it produced this very, um, very referential work. I really appreciate you sharing that. And uh, for anyone who does listen to this interview, um, now they'll know that, you know, part of the secret sauce that went into it and the, the amount of craftsmanship. So what is your plan for publishing and distribution? So there's been an interesting phenomenon in the publishing world. I was reading a piece about um, and recently in the New Yorker, um, I believe, we've reached a point where the publishing industry is sustained by debut novels and big name novels. So the history of, um, you know, Jonathan Franzen writing his third novel, that being the corrections and that taking him to a new level um, was a wonderful thing to sort of watch happen if you were if you were following his early work. Um, but it's kind of anachronistic now. Um, there's so much pressure to produce on the first book. Um, so Dry World was very much a disappointment to me in terms of how it it spread and like the people who read it all seemed to love it, but no one seemed to know it existed or read it. Um, and so that being my first book out there, um, you know, I'm in a position where Roosevelt's my second book. Um, and so I don't have that, you know, wow factor of being a, an author putting his first thing out there. Um, so I'm, I sort of thought about this a lot and, you know, this is this may go against your any political leanings you have, but hear me out here. So Amazon is inevitable, right? Like you cannot avoid the Amazon machine and write. Uh, you can write for you know Simon and Schuster and 
and but they're going to sell it on Amazon. Um, or you can be one of the guys who who writes, you know, 50 romance novels a year and makes a living on Amazon, you know, full spectrum. Everybody's using Amazon. So I've decided with this work to try to game or use every advantage that I can get through leveraging Amazon, meaning it's going to be an Amazon exclusive book. You're going to only read it on Kindle or get it through KDP on paperback through Amazon. That is interesting because it conveys only going through Amazon gives you lots of marketing advantages, digital marketing. Um, they, they stack the deck for you and how it appears in all the rankings. So I'm curious, instead of going the indie publisher pure route that I did the first time, just very scientifically approaching the manner in which books need to be distributed and trying to growth hack it. Um, just so that this book can get it to an, as many people as possible um, without, you know, dying on the cross of artistic integrity. So, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to blow up Amazon and see what happens. And you got to make sure you uh, get enough of those comments, right? And it's showing that there's a lot, they, they hack the comments is a big part of it too, or a lot of uh, su suppliers, distributors, sellers on the marketplace are also trying to figure out a way to pay people to like actually comment on it. Yeah, um, and that was one nice thing about my first book is I got four organic comments on it. Um, I didn't solicit any of those. I, they were very kind, you know. Um, I have friends who've had major releases from houses that have six or seven or eight or nine. So I, I'm not sure. I think that's 20% of the people who bought the book just kidding but like um, you know it's good to have that that intensity in the people who consume your work um but i think that you may get an email from me to uh write a review evan no problem I'm <laughs> any number of you listening right now just if dylan brock shows up in your inbox he's going to be asking you to help him make amazon work for him Hey, I'm I'm all about hacking Amazon, so I, I can change my name and you know put in a bunch <laughs> of different names as well. Just kidding, Amazon. You know, don't get me in trouble. Um, don't shut yeah, down. We want to keep you in the terms of service, so your review stays up. That's yeah, true. Cool. Yeah, true, true. Uh, so before we move on a little bit about your process of writing and and the role of the artist, uh, could you talk a bit about this new Substack? that you created, and I believe I'm pronouncing it correct. It's uh, Verissimi uh, Lit. Yeah, so it was to take uh, the word verisimilitude and, you know, play with it a little bit. Because um, that's a word that was given to me over and over again in the eight years that I studied writing in graduate and undergraduate, um, that creating truth that's truer than the truth, you know, um, that art is this, this expression of, you know, higher truth that, that actually is more honest than just giving the facts um, and is a more realistic representation of where things are. So um, I started a Substack, yeah, recently. Um, it's a uh, verisimilit dot substack.com 
I'm playing with the format. I'm playing with the medium. I'm, I'm really liking what I'm finding. Uh, I think direct access to people's in-mail uh, inbox is, is a really powerful way to communicate longer forms with them. So um, it's really a, a test tube right now. Um, I think it's fun. I mean, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it. But the main thing that I'm looking at exploring in there is to try to take this concept of fake news or disinformation as it exists in the media right now and explode it and explore it and, and look at where does that end in fiction begin, right? Where does someone deceiving the world and someone honestly deceiving the world and, and how do those things come together? So um, it's gonna be um, fun exploring it, but there's a lot of ground to cover there and I'm not sure where it's gonna end up, but I, anybody who wants to join me along the ride, I think it's gonna be fun wherever we end up going. And is it going to be your work alone, or are you going to bring on other writers? Oh no, no! I'm gonna. I'm. I've invited one of uh, a collaborator I've worked with, Benjamin Townsend, and um, talked to a few other people about joining. Um, and yeah, I'm. I'm interested in kind of putting together a literary review of sorts. I don't want to tie it to that, but that exists only in the form of an email newsletter um, and emails that people get. Um, I think that people read a good email more likely than they do um, read necessarily a website. They might just skim that. Um, so I'm really excited about exploring that new way to communicate with people and, and trying to bring the spirit of fiction into um, that kind of communication, the truer than the truth idea. Yeah, that's, well, I'll definitely put um, Verisimilit uh, in the show notes as well. Everyone should sign up for that. And talk a little bit about your process as a writer. Uh, how do you approach such a big, I mean, to, to say like, I wanna write this novel based on The Great Gatsby. And that, that's just, you know, hundreds, thousands of hours of, of labor and work on it. So how do you, what is your process of tackling such a big project? You know, there's a lot, and, and I, I think I touched on this somewhat earlier of, you know, looking at the way that the senses are structured and patterning structure to structure the senses. But there's a lot of magic that goes into that too. You know, you can't just open a tablet of Mad Libs and, and write. Shakespeare, even if it's a Shakespeare sentence with all the words taken out. Um, the magic is in a number of ways in which you fill in those gaps and how you fill them in. And, you know, so I think that that aspect of the process is, is fairly straightforward. Um, as far as craft goes, um, I write on my phone almost exclusively now. And I, I have a pretty busy life. I have a career and a family and um, you know, a few other things going on. 
And so what I started to do with this book was instead of reading the news or checking the weather, whenever I got a chance I would to look at my phone during some downtime, I would work on another few sentences for this, or I'd revise some sentences for this. So the entire first draft was written in a, an app on my phone, um, one sentence at a time. Um, and then I took it and I revised it in Word and I, I did a lot of you know, printouts and all that stuff, but it was really just, um, it was having access to that thing everywhere I went that allowed me to do it because otherwise, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to write this manuscript in, you know, with the obligations I have. Um, and uh, so that, that kind of opened things up for me. And I still write that way a lot. Um, I just find it freeing to be able to write anywhere. It's like having a little notepad was in the nineties or when I used to carry a moleskin around. So when you're writing about characters, what, when you're writing about the female character, what do you think, or is someone from a different cultural background, what is uh, that process and what are some of the obstacles that, um, and pitfalls you, you avoid and obstacles you overcome? Well, at the end of the day, everything people do and say and write is a matter of language that has a linguistic structure, you know, and there's all kinds of research done about the way that, um, you know, oppression can express itself through prescriptive grammar or through, um, you know, deifying the Oxford English Dictionary uh, as the one true English and thinking about all the people that don't speak that, right, and subjugating them verbally. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, English is language and we're all trying to be mutually intelligible. Um, most of the time we wanna understand what the other person is saying and for them to understand us when we say things. And so in order to do that, we all have to build this substance of language from the same grammatical structures and the same set of words, however many there are, and so when you reduce language to, you know, it's, it's, it's core and you look at um, less represented groups of people or, um, you know, disadvantaged populations. And instead of just trying to say, I'm gonna understand what that person's head is and what's going on in there but to just write down everything they say, like, because you're not gonna get in their head and it's not really your job. Your job, if you do carry any message they have is, is to capture the fidelity of their expression and you know reflect it rather than try to comprehend it. And so, you know, I've, when I've written um, on these topics in the past, it's always really come down to me to trying to create a um, a representation of the language being used rather than um, trying to go deep and do things that just aren't possible. You know, I'm never going to know what it's like 
to be a 19 year old woman. Um, and if I go and I watch a bunch of videos or movies or whatever, and read a bunch of books about 19 year old women, if I break everything I'm consuming down to its core language, then it's just a matter of putting the pieces together in the same manner they were put together on the other side. And that's really where the magic comes from. That's sort of the verisimilitude is you, you do the math, you, you put the, the pieces together and the person takes that in and they experience something that feels like you really did capture that, that group. And I, I, I've been told that the women in Roosevelt are um, well represented, which was, you know, a real, um, a real achievement for me to hear that from, you know, people who understand some of the, the feminism and the, the stuff that went into it. Um, but I didn't do that by trying to get inside a woman's head. I did it by um, trying to reflect, right? And, and capture and render not to, not to try to figure it out. Um, I think that when you, when you figure it out and you, you put your ideas in, you're much more likely to get into trouble <laughs> of some kind or, or worse, just sound bad. You know, so um, it's the job of the writer is to write, you know, and um, when I'm writing to recreate um, and represent like a painter um, or a sculptor, I'm much less likely to get mixed up in politics in the wrong way. So that's some great advice to, to give to aspiring writers as well. And just to kind of round uh, the question of writing and maybe people who are interested in, in trying to write beautiful novels like yourself. Uh, if you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would it be? Write more often. Thank that's you. Good. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I, I, I would have liked to have produced more at, at earlier points in my life. Um, and um, I think that writing is something that happens when you put yourself in the chair, or in my case, you pick up your phone and start thumbing. But unless you're in the process of writing, um, you're you're never going to be able to recreate the knowledge you get from doing that the act of writing through any amount of reading or any amount of education. Um, all of the reading and the education inform what you're doing, but the actual act of writing in one way or another for three hours a day for six months or six years, um, there's no substitute for the work. And um, when you start doing it, two things happen you stop um, with, or you kind of get addicted to it. And uh, 
that's always something that I felt is that if once you write enough or, or you get far enough into it, it's no longer a, um, it's, it's no longer a, a something you want to do all the time as much as it is something that you're compelled to do like uh, eating, right? Like I haven't written in a few weeks here. I have to write something just to keep going. Um, I think a lot of people feel that way. Some of them aren't even quote unquote writers. Um, some of them are, some of them express themselves in other ways, but um, when that creative expression becomes a part of your um, sustenance and habit, then it's no longer really a, it's no longer really a matter of, um, you know, your big ideas and trying to be this great figure, right? So when I was young, I had a lot of um, ambitions. <laughs> I, I have friends that sometimes throw the things I said back at me. And the one that I, I, I still hear uh, from a friend of mine was that apparently in an English class, I once said that they asked us, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to write novels that your grandchildren are forced to read in classes like this. And like, so that level of audacity and uh, arrogance, right? You know, it turns people off, it turns them on, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's irrelevant. It's, it's uh, you can be the most arrogant person in the world convinced you're the greatest writer if you don't write you're, you're not a writer you can be the most humble person in the world barely even consider yourself a writer but if you're writing you're a writer and um i think that throughout my life i saw that ambition and that arrogance get right-sized through any number of negative or life-changing events um from starting a family all of that um but I think that ultimately what kept me going is the same thing that got me started. And that's that, that habit, that get in the chair, pick up the phone, just do it. Um, there's no substitute for that. And uh, sometimes I wish I had spent less time learning about writing and talking about writing and more time just writing. So that's the long version of the, the write more. <laughs> <laughs> advice that I started with. So taking a step back, there's only a few more questions left. What do you see the role of the artist is in society? Um, I love the Brecht line that art is a hammer. Um, I think it's more than that. I think it, art is like a whole tool, tool belt, right? Of political tools. Like you've got your hammer and you've got your nails and you've got your your saw and like it's all really political at the end of the day. I, I think that every act of creation of language exists within a political context and consciousness, whether or not that anyone is willing to acknowledge it, because the person who created that existed within a political context and consciousness. So you can either try to obscure that and look at art and writing as something separate from 
reality altogether, this sort of thing that's out there. Or you can look at the context of the artist who created it um, and, you know, what was going on. Um, and so, you know, even something like, like uh, some of these books like Harry Potter or The Wizard of Oz or any of that, you know, anything that's sort of escapist, a lot of times those, those, the consciousness of that is just like, I'm disgusted with this world and I want to go to another one that's totally different, right? Um, so I want to have this fantasy because I'm really sick of this reality. So even that has, has a political context. You know, something made you that disgusted with this reality that you need to, you know, go chase dwarves and cast spells with wizards. Um, that's a great feeling doing those kind of fun uh, expo explorations of writing, uh, explorations of reading. But at the end of the day, what created all of that was a human being who existed in a political context. And to personalize it, how do you see yourself as an artist in these turbulent times? And even this novel that you wrote, you know, um, on all these themes. Yeah, I guess really, I wanted to impress upon people that the world works better when you try to understand first and then be understood to uh, really seek to put yourself in the position of someone else. And that sounds like a very, um, difficult thing to do sometimes if the person is very different than you. But what I found throughout this book was that if I reduced it to language and I reduced it to the, the, the thing that exists between us, which is the only thing that I can measure, which is the communication, whether that's verbal, whether it's, you know, facial expressions. Um, if I can reduce our relationship to the communication between us and try to represent that in something, and do that about people that are different from myself, it puts me in a position where I better understand uh, larger groups, larger issues. So I, I think that the, the empathy component of this was, was very instrumental. And I think if everyone just tried to be someone else and to see them as someone who's, having a problem when you have a problem with them, the world would be a much better place. So you've been very generous with your time and I always like to lead and leave um, with something positive and, and what you just said, I think was very positive, but where do you see opportunity and hope going into the, the future? Oh, it's everywhere. I'm sick of dystopia. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with 1984, I'm done with Blade Runner, I'm done with, uh, you know, any of this dark, rainy future stuff. It's like, it's been done, you know, people have written it. If you're writing it, fine, have fun with your dystopia. But I'm interested in like a future that looks more like Star Trek than Blade Runner, right? Like I wanna see what this inevitable progression of technology can do that'll make our lives better because we're not going to stop it, you know, we're not going to turn it back. 
So let's at least imagine a world where we are better than we could be because of the things we're making, right? So I think there's a lot happening in our world right now that people are doing to try to make this a better place. I think writing can capture that. And I think that the deeper we go into cynicism, um, the further we get from usefulness. So, um, you know, I, I just wanna see sunshine and I wanna see a future that I wanna be in. Um, and I think if I can imagine that, you know, maybe we can get closer to it. Dylan James Brock, second novel, Roosevelt, Michigan, a musical novel will be released on June 18th. Thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're doing. Thank you. It was great to be here and it's great to hear you talk. It's great to be heard.